Pete Hansen, and I'll be reading today's passage, Luke 6, 20 through 26. So please open your Bibles to follow along. Luke 6, 20 through 26. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you, and spurn your name as evil, on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Pete. I trust you had a wonderful Thanksgiving whether you were by yourself or with a group of, of family members. It looks like some of you maybe feasted too much. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, that, I was just putting myself in that category. But uh, so good that you could be here with us today. And it's an exciting time of year, a lot going on. And we're starting into the Christmas thing. And actually the big Christmas party is Friday night. So families, don't, don't forget about that. Make sure you're aware of that. Those of you who uh, decided to tough it out and come out in the snow in the beautiful a wintry morning that we had, and I know some of you are staying home and watching online, and we're uh, glad you can be safe and warm as well. Last week, we talked about how Jesus, through dil diligent prayer, invokes the Heavenly Father's guidance and invites unlikely candidates to be his disciples and introduces them to ministry. Jesus sets the example of spending time in prayer before making a big decision. And then he invites some common Galileans to be his apostles, 12 whom he would pour his life out into. He would train them and equip them and empower them and send them out in ministry and they'd be used mightily. And God still calls ordinary people to be used by him to do his work. Our text today isn't going to seem like a, a Thanksgiving-related text, but I believe you will leave here today feeling even more grateful. We're going to look at the Beatitudes in the uh, beginning of the Sermon on the Level Place, as Luke calls it, and we'll see Jesus' pushback on the cultural uh, understanding of wealth and, and the source of true blessing. He invites his audience to see past that which is temporal and to look toward that which is eternal. We see here really an admonition to be a disciple who is blessed through suffering, to uh, be a disciple who knows there is danger to those who find their satisfaction in the here and in the now. I want to suggest to you that today our, our text is a little bit easier to understand at least what Jesus is saying than it is to apply. And we'll spend a, a fair amount of our time wrestling with that, what that means. Would you join me in prayer? 
Heavenly Father, we do commit this time to you, and we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the beauty of it. And Lord, we are so grateful for you. As we come off of this time of thanksgiving, we are mindful, especially as believers, as those who understand who Jesus is and what he came to do and the salvation that he brings us, we can't help but be humbly filled with gratitude. Lord, we truly are filled with praise and adoration for you because of the salvation we have in Jesus Christ, and we just say thank you. Father, we're delighted that we can gather and worship, that we can come before your throne and, and with united hearts and just say, we give you glory and honor and praise. And Father, now would you take this time and would you use it the way you have in mind and what, may your spirit just move mightily in each of our hearts and lives. And Father, may we be responsive to your word and to your spirit. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. I've entitled today's message, message How It Really Is. And uh, Jesus' words in today's text actually kind of sound wrong from the vantage point of our culture. You know how it is when something is said that just sounds wrong. It sounds counterintuitive. Like higher cancer rates generally indicate a healthier society. And it's because people are living longer and therefore increases the chances for cancer. Sometimes you hear the phrase, you have to spend money to make money. Kind of sounds counterintuitive. Or exercise and have more energy. Or sometimes you say more by saying less. (laughs) Right on, preacher. No, anyway. Uh, Or no matter what you know or think you know, your wife is always right. Men, are you afraid to laugh? Okay. This is serious. Today's culture might be more inclined to to agree with that passage if it sounded like this. Blessed are you who are wealthy, for yours is the kingdom of God. Or blessed are you who eat much food. For you shall remain satisfied. Blessed are you who laugh now, for your laughter shall continue. And blessed are you when people love you and when they include you and when they admire you. I mean, that might sound more accurate to us, and yet I hope not. I hope if you understand Scripture, you understand that that's not right. And, and the way Pete read it is the right way to read it. And I, I'm frankly glad that that's the right way. In our culture the words the way I read it might sound more right to us because the wealthy in many respects seem to be more blessed. We look at their lives and we wow, I mean, that's great. And we could allow ourselves to believe that God must be certainly pleased with them. And the ones who eat much food obviously are satisfied. Uh, The joyful people are certainly happy because God has blessed them. And and who doesn't want to be liked by others? It's certainly nice to be liked by others, right? It's great. Or to be admired or, or to be respected or appreciated. 
that we who know the Bible and the accurate teaching of Jesus, we, we push back against those words the way I read them because we understand they weren't the words of Jesus. And, and we're quick to correct such ideas and such thinking. But I might ask us, do our lives reflect those thoughts and those ideas? We might be able to correct the, the, the wrong ideas, and we can say it the way Jesus said it, but do our lives then reflect that? It's a tough question to consider. In my pastoral circles, we will often joke about the need to boost our church attendance, and so we always joke about preaching health and wealth gospel for a while just to bump the numbers up. Because people want to hear those things, right? And it actually works for growing a church numerically. But we understand why we don't. But truthfully, even in our own lives, this type of thinking, this kind of health and wealth kind of thinking can creep in. If things don't go well, if we face troubles or hardships or things don't go the way we want, then we think that we must be sinning. There must be something that God is not happy with in my life. Quite often I will hear from somebody when I'm meeting with them in my office or whatever, I can't imagine why God would allow such and such. And then it's usually followed by some assumption of spiritual failure on their part in some way or another. It's hard not to think that way. Because we think if things are, are going good, we're doing the right things, and things should be good. They should be smooth. They should flow. And it's, it's just the way our mind thinks. And in reality, don't we all want to be blessed, right? We want to live a good life. And don't we look at others sometimes and we think, now that's living. That's, that's, that's the way I want it to be for me or for us. When we read words like this from Jesus, we might want to complain and say, wait a minute, that's not what I signed up for. When those people told me about Jesus and, and, and salvation by faith in, in Christ and in Christ alone, it just that, that sounded good to me. But this whole suffering thing or, or sorrow, it doesn't sound quite as good. We can get confused about the idea of who is blessed and, and how they are blessed. Think about this question. How many of us have said in regards to things that have uh, gone well for us or whatever, things that are, have been uh, what we see as good, we, we say the phrase, I'm so blessed. God has been good to me. Right? Yet Jesus declares that the poor, the hungry, the, the weeping and the hated to be the blessed ones. What do we do with this? How are they blessed? And, and what does blessed even mean here, right? Uh, let's, let's chase that first. I mean, what does blessed mean? We use it in many ways. An athlete will, will, will be blessed with a certain body type to make them good at their sport. Or scholars are blessed with amazing intellects, amazing ability to retain knowledge or to comprehend that which is complex for most. With material resources, we say we're blessed, whether it's inherited or and or earned, we, we say uh, so blessed. Blessed with great health. 
blessed with a wonderful spouse. But we have to say, is that what blessed means here? Does it mean happiness? In this context, I think it comes up short. The poor? How many of us go around and say, uh, so happy to have minimal and limited resources? Makes me really happy. Or thrilled to have nothing to eat. Or weeping. I know some people cry when they're really happy and that freaks out other people, but uh, happy while weeping? Hated is certainly not the prescription for happiness, is it? And we've got to be careful about tying emotion to it, right? Emotion can be included in being blessed, but they're certainly not necessary. Does blessed mean fortunate? Are we fortunate to be poor? To be hungry, to be weeping, to be sobbing? Are we fortunate in those moments? To be hated? Is this heavy enough for anybody yet? Should I keep going deeper here? (laughs) Fortunate, not likely, right? A better answer might be just to say a declaration or a disposition. But it's understanding this idea of, of Jesus talking about divine favor here. So, so Jesus presents it pretty clearly, and I don't want to re-preach a sermon that Jesus preached because you can't fix it, right? We only have to look at it from the point of, of saying, what is the action point of the passage? And how do we process this from a, a North American, generally prosperous vantage point? Are, are we to pursue poverty? To pursue hunger? Sorrow or to be hated? Is there something to gain from each of these things? They're not salvific. We don't accomplish uh, hunger or sorrow to be saved. Again, the context is always so critical. Look with me at at verse 20 of chapter 6 there. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So to whom are these words addressed? It's his disciples. His his focus and thoughts are on on and directed toward his followers, the the committed ones. He's teaching and preparing them for what is before them. And he's desiring to transform their way of thinking, to have them look at life a little bit different. And, and, And maybe this is because Matthew's now struggling with having left his lucrative life behind. Who knows? We know from history that many of the followers of Jesus would turn back. And yet, for others, they would even be martyred for this. Because they wouldn't stop proclaiming the death and physical resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus wants to prepare them for for whatever's before them and alert them of the cost of being a a disciple and to to let them know, listen, that cost is really high, but it will be worth it, is what he's saying. It's going to be hard, but it will be worth it. In Matthew's gospel, in chapter 19, uh, Peter had, had said to Jesus, listen, we've left everything to follow you. 
And in verse 29, Jesus responds, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will, re and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. I think we got to be important, put a lot of emphasis here on, on saying, listen, let's not minimize the sacrifices that are mentioned here for his sake. This is leaving loved ones or leaving value behind or, or wealth. But, but doing it for his sake means you'll receive a hundredfold. That is not a bad deal. Anybody in business would be glad to make any deal that they can make a hundredfold. The context here in Luke it includes that they will face great trials as they carry the message of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus forward. Again, it's more than they know, more than they understand at that point. Look with me at verse 22 of Luke 6. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus knows that it will be on the account, account of him, the Son of Man, that they will face these things. And, and, and being hated, excluded, reviled, spurned as evil. But he says, rejoice in that day. That does not come automatically to you and I. To go through those things and, and then just say, we're going to re rejoice in that day. We're going to leap for joy. People are going to treat you like garbage. And, and Jesus is saying, leap for joy. What? Come on. Why? Because your reward is great in heaven. And he's saying, listen, the people mistreated the prophets too. They were the heroes, remember? They, they were mistreated too. And the passage is making a little sense now. And if you're experiencing hardship for doing what is right and doing what is according to the will of God, then be happy because this turns out well for you. In, in the big picture, so the admonition here is to be a, a disciple who is blessed through suffering. Crazy. And Jesus is saying, it's okay because you are not living for the now. And you can't live life by how you feel today. You've got to have an eternal perspective. When we suffer now for the right reasons, we'll be greatly blessed later on. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, if you're suffering for me, then you're on the right track. It's a good sign. Again, counterintuitive. It's, it's so illogical in our minds. Even in the ministry realm, we can assume that we're doing everything right as long as uh, people respond well and express gratitude. We might judge ministry be, because we'll look and we'll go by the measurables and we'll say success is, is obvious when these things are here. 
a ministry will expand or the church will grow and the budget will be met. And, and as long as all those things are in line, then, then obviously God's blessing and that's what God, we want. But that's not all of what Jesus is teaching here. He's talking about the poor and the hungry, the weeping and the hated being the blessed ones. He takes the teaching even farther, shifting the focus from encouraging the downtrodden to warning those who are living it up. Look at verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Strong words here, right? And again, context is key. And Jesus is drawing a sharp contrast here. He's comparing those who choose comforts of today over following Jesus sacrificially. He's, he's contrasting those, those camps It's if you love your riches now, enjoy them while you can, because it won't remain. Right now is as good as it gets, and maybe his his focus is on those who who love money a little bit too much. It was too important to him. Remember later on in Luke, in chapter 16, we find in verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There will be many who had it all in this life who will suffer because they never realized that they needed Jesus more. The people that many of us would look at and say, that's living. We might want what they have. You may be gluttonous now, but you'll be desperate for food. You may be laughing it up now, but you will mourn and weep. People may love you now, but they love the false prophets too. And look at what happened to them. Don't find your satisfaction in what this life offers It is temporary, and it will not satisfy. There's some fascinating stats out there about uh, what's happened in America with the increase of wealth. But along with that, there has been a dramatic increase in mental health and anxiety issues. And the contentedness margin does not match the increase in affluence. It's interesting. At this point in time, as we look at this passage, we have to realize that there are factors that are different for us as Christians today than in Jesus' time. Proclaiming Christ now doesn't necessarily uh, mean that we're going to be led to poverty and hunger. Proclaiming Christ and, and living for Christ could threaten your em- employment. And I would say those of us who claim Christ and walk with him, I think we know what it is to weep. 
I think that's still the truth. I, I, I think you can't help but look at our culture and, and weep. The condition of the family. Over the summer, I connected with a, a single dad who was raising his kids. His wife had, had left. And it was interesting listening to him struggling through that, raising some energetic boys without Jesus. It's hard not to look at things like that and weep. As we look back over the last few years and we see the divisions that were raised over COVID, that, that should break our hearts. The, the racial tensions, I, I think you can't be in Jesus and, and not have a heartache over that. The abuses and the bad things that are happening, those things should break our hearts. Political unrest and even the hatred within the political parties. To be in Jesus, I think it means that we weep over those things. So I think we can understand that in our culture. But I don't think we understand a whole lot about being hated on the account of Jesus. Some are. But when it comes to the realm of persecution, I don't think there's that much of that here. And yet it does still happen around the world. The Voice of the Martyrs produced a book entitled Heroic Faith a few years back. And I really like it because it kind of addresses what it would be like in today's time to suffer like Jesus was talking about here. And within the book, they highlight a few things. These are not my points. They're, they're from the book. They, they highlight common characteristics of radically devoted followers of Jesus who have experienced these struggles. And one of the things they point out, number one, they're energized by an eternal perspective. They see this life as an investment in the next life. They look at it as, as something to use to, to put in, uh, treasures in heaven. In Matthew 9, that's what Jesus was saying, or Matthew 6, verse 19. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Just like the individuals who invest his or her finance in, in, in bigger payoff later, it's that idea of, of, of understanding life that way, looking at our life going, we could just live for today or we can live for eternity. And, and why would people do this? Why would people buy into that level of degree? It's because they believe these words of Jesus. They have faith in the promises of Scripture. So they're energized by an eternal perspective. Second, they have an uncanny dependence on God. They know better than to count on their own strength or understanding. Perhaps you've heard Corey Ten Moon's story of, of going back and actually encountering one of the guards from the prison camp. And realizing that this man was now a follower of Jesus. And now she just had to ask God for the strength to even greet him and to shake his hand. And how when she finally did, in God's power, it was just healing to her and to him. An uncanny dependence on God. 
They love the word of God. Six weeks after the terrorist attack in America, Muslim terrorists interrupted a church service in Pakistan. Three gunmen entered through the back of the building. One of them charged up to the pulpit and ordered the pastor to throw his Bible to the ground. Pastor Emmanuel clutched his Bible to his heart and turned his back on the terrorists and said, I will not. To the horror of the congregation, the terrorists shot him in the back as Pastor Emmanuel's wife and children looked on. They have a love for the word of God. William Tyndale couldn't, or could speak seven languages and was proficient in ancient Hebrew and Greek. He was a priest whose intellectual gifts and disciplined life could have taken him a long way in the church had he not had one compulsion to teach English men and women the good news of justification by faith. On October 6, after local officials took their seats, Tyndale was brought to the cross in the middle of the town square and given a chance to recant. That refused. He was given a moment to pray. English historian John Fox said he cried out, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Then he was bound to the beam. Both an iron chain and a rope were put around his neck. Gunpowder was added to the brush and the logs. And at the signal of the local officials, the executioner standing behind Tyndale quickly tightened the noose, strangling him. Then an official took a lighted torch and handed it to the executioner who set the wood ablaze. They love the word of God. Number four, they're outrageously courageous. A Lithuanian woman exclaimed while awaiting sentencing for being a Christian in a communist country, this is the happiest day of my life. I'm on trial for the cause of truth and love toward men. I have an enviable fate, a glorious destiny. My condemnation here in this courtroom will be my ultimate triumph. Five, they are living examples of what it means to endure. When the temptation to walk away and seek reprieve of the trials comes, they think in terms of eternity and keep going. Number six, they take obedience very seriously. One woman shared, when asked why her family was going back to Kabul to serve, she said, I know of only one great danger. The only danger is to not be in the center of God's will. She and her husband were killed by switchblade-wielding Muslims for loving the people of Kabul. They take obedience very seriously. Number seven, they are unquestionably self-controlled. They know how serious it is to remain focused on the faith and on the cause of Christ. Finally, number eight, they are marked quite simply by love. Because they've been loved by Christ, they must love others. Richard Wormbrand in Victorious Faith writes, There once was a fiddler who played so beautifully that everybody danced. A deaf man who could not hear the music thought they were all insane. 
those who are with Jesus in his suffering hear the music to which others are deaf to. They dance as if they don't care and are considered insane. Isn't that great? All right. How are we going to land this? Perhaps you're, you're stuck on the suffering part, maybe in one of two ways. And maybe you're just going, listen, I, I've walked with Jesus for a while, and I've been bold about it. And, and when, I, when push comes to shove, I haven't suffered. Just because of where I live. And so, so maybe that's your issue. You go, think, I haven't suffered. Or the other issue might be, you, you look at this and you go, I don't want to. I mean, who of us are quick to say, oh, yeah, please sign me up for suffering, please. Hunger, being hated, poverty. So again, what's the, what do we do with this, right? Uh, we are all wired different in regards to risk-taking. It's been fun to, to have eight kids and to see how different they all can be toward risk. You got the ones that, that want to grab your phone and they'll run up to the edge of any cliff so that they can get a selfie showing themselves hanging over it. And you got the other ones 20 feet behind clutching a railing, right? Or ones who would get up in front of hundreds of people and speak and other ones who wouldn't even want to be in the room. There, there's different risk factors and things, right? As I wrestled through this passage this week, I really got stuck on should we ask God for it? Would we be so bold that say, Lord, may I suffer in your name? Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a tough one. I don't know that that's what the Lord's asking us to do, but I, certainly he's saying uh, for us who are believers that we would come to a point where we would say, Lord, use me. And then come what may, Right? Like we were talking about last week, thy will be done. It's not so much that we're saying, Lord, please put me in a situation where I'm going to suffer, where life's just going to be horrible for me. But at least we, we would say, Lord, your will be done, not mine. Put, put me where you want to put me. Because we've got to go back and ask, based upon this, we would have to say, what risk is the Lord challenging us to that is truly a risk in light of, of his words? That we could gain a hundredfold? <laughs> that our reward would be great in heaven? Where's the risk there? But maybe the question needs to be, God, what, what risk do I need to take in your name? What, what comfort and what security am I hiding behind that, that keeps me out of this whole bracket of faith? I've shared it before, but I love J.D. Greer's quote out of his book on prayer. He said, many of us say we want great faith, but we demand that God remove us from any situation where we would have to show any. I think it's so good. Yeah, sign me up for great faith. But Lord, would you move all these problems out of the way? As followers of Christ, we know how this turns out. He promises reward to his followers. And that alone is reason to be thankful. 
It's reason to be grateful that we have a God who calls us out of being lost and then has a purpose for us and a plan for us. That's why we say, thy will be done. And even if it's hard, even if suffering comes, it's thy will be done. The glory goes to you, God, and I give you praise because great is the reward for me for being your follower. Let's pray together. Father, would you just work in each of our own hearts? May your Holy Spirit just work in our hearts as far as just guiding us to what this means. What does it look like for our lives to be radically dependent on Jesus, to follow after? Lord, would your Holy Spirit just stir in our hearts and, Lord, make us at least willing to take that next risk that is before us, to do it in your name and for your glory. And, Father, we thank you in advance for all you will do for us, for great is a reward of your people. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.